It must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. How can we move beyond the idea of school being just about pedagogy, lessons, standards, and team meetings to it holding a place in society where we embrace and reshape the intersection of race, class, gender, and power? My guest today is the co-author of the book, Teaching as Protest and Abolition, Utilizing Racially Conscious Tools for Emancipating the Classroom. She spent the last decade at the East Harlem Tutorial Program and was the founding managing director of the East Harlem Teaching Residency. She's also an adjunct lecturer who actually doesn't lecture at Hunter College. She recently accepted a position as the diversity, equity, and inclusion leader for the Somers Central School District in New York. Please welcome Susan Gonzowitz. Oh, hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You're just pausing for applause, right? <laughs> well, that's what happens when you record in advance. Um, it's, it's great to have you. You have a really interesting background and, and even interesting what you're doing today. And I have to ask you this question first. I said I might ask it, but I have to. You have to explain to the listeners your last name, because when I first heard it, I was like, Gonzowitz, Gonzowitz. Now, what kind of a name? What is the heritage of that name? And uh, it is so intriguing to me. So come on, you have to share that story. Absolutely, yeah. So um, my uh, my husband was a Gonzalez, and I was a Horowitz. And I, you know, we were we were planning our wedding, and I realized how much paperwork it was going to be to change my name on my social security card and everything else you have to do. And I figured if I had to go through it, he had to go through it too. So it's only fair. So the entire family got together, and we. Uh, you know, we played anagrams with the with the letters for a few a few months, and Gonzowitz was, I mean, no one believes me, but Gonzowitz actually was the best option we could come <laughs> up with. <laughs> I often wonder what's going to happen to first of all the idea of women taking on men's names, and second, you know, I I think you've come up with a good plan here, which is just like oh, come up with a new name. So I love that. Well, listen, let's get to the let's get to the topic of what you do. You wrote a blog post in 2019 entitled I never talked about race in my 7 years in the classroom. Now I work to make sure future teachers do. Share your journey with us. What led you to this shift in your own practice? Yeah. Um so I as as a white woman, I think it's really easy to move through the world and not have to talk about your racial identity. And so I became a teacher in a predominantly black and brown community right out of college. And I don't think I had ever out loud called myself a white woman. Um, and my first year of teaching, I had a young boy who uh, was born physically divergent. Um, he had some learning needs that were different from my other young people. Uh, and he really I should say I really struggled to support him to be his best learner in the classroom. And I remember very early in my, my journey with him, I had a very difficult day and I met his mother on the playground at dismissal and I approached her with your son. I don't remember what I said after your son, but I just started with your son. And her response to me was you white women, you're all the same. And she got, very angry and very close to my body. And um, I actually had to have a, a, another teacher step in and 
de-escalate the situation. And I was sent to the office to sort of, um, you know, they were very worried about keeping me safe in that moment, which is actually something I also reflect on. But that was the first time anyone had ever sort of categorized me by my racial identity and not thought about me as an individual. And that sent me on a journey of what is the legacy that I'm carrying with me that that is where that woman started. And that started me on my journey of thinking about how do we make conversations about identity comfortable and real and honest when so many people are processing racial identity as an aspect of how we interact with the world around us and the people around us, right? My racial identity really mattered in that moment and I didn't and I didn't realize it. Could you have used your racial identity as a different lever at that point? Yeah, so I think that I could have recognized the legacy of white women in education and I could have approached her. I mean, I could have, no matter what my identity was, approached her very differently. Um, You know, starting a conversation with a mother who loves her child and has probably heard a lot about how her child shows up in school in not the best ways. I I could have been more human about my approach, period. I think- She's probably heard that year after year. Year after year. Mm -hmm. I, I think particularly, I carried a legacy of every white woman in education who has come into the Bronx and approached her right with me Mm -hmm. and so if I had recognized that or known that there would have been a way to ask her how she was doing to ask her if she could come inside and have a conversation with me to tell her all of the wonderful things that I knew and loved about her child who was you know a really special young man and frustrated me beyond belief right but I didn't have to start with he frustrated me beyond belief Right. And, and if I had better understood how my racial identity was going to make what I had to say harder to hear, I could have been more, more thoughtful about my approach. It really is uh, about empathy. I think it's about, I think it's about empathy, but part of empathy is recognizing both the interpersonal and the systems and structures that shape the way that people experience the world. Well, and, I think that's key is the system. There are systems in place, as you said, that caused you to automatically have baggage attached to you. Exactly. Right. Whether that is, you know, socioeconomic or racial or, you know, gender identity. I think all of those things change the way you are allowed to move in the world, the, the way the world allows you to move and the way you experience everything. And then if we don't take time to sort of analyze power dynamics, we step into unnecessary, we step into situations that are unnecessarily fraught. Right. And I think one of the misunderstandings in the world today, for instance, is that teaching about cultural diversity and the history of traditionally marginalized groups is equivalent to blaming white people. And we know that that's not the purpose. So what what advice do you give to districts that you may be consulting with um, in this area? So uh, on top of my career, I am also a graduate student um, working on my doctorate and I I am studying what it looks like to do this work in spaces where there is less racial diversity, um, less socioeconomic diversity, right? Predominantly white spaces. And and what does it look like to, to create safe space to have conversation? And 
very early in my graduate career, one of the projects that I worked on was interviewing parents of white students um, who themselves identify as white, who are either hesitant or resistant to what they call critical race theory. And that was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I was very appreciative that there were people willing to talk to me about their resistance. But what I what I found at the end of the day was, I mean, and it was a very small study, so I'm not trying to make claims about, you know, wh- why people feel what they feel or think what they think. But what I found was there are so many, I mean, everybody wants what's best for their babies and everybody wants everybody to get what's best for their babies, right? Nobody is saying, I want my child to have better than your child. And everybody, when they approach these conversations, you know, fear of what bad could happen or fear of how my child may experience the world and have a different culture than myself or a different understanding of how the world works in myself that will cause a tear, that's that's real, right? If, if, if my educational experience is different from my babies, if somebody is trying to give my baby a different culture than the culture I was raised in, that's scary, right? Or, uh, you know, I do believe that these problems exist, but I don't know that educators have been properly trained to do the work that's also scary. You're entrusting the person you love most in the world with another adult. And and you want to know that they can have these conversations in a way that won't cause further harm. So I think that that can, that can all get sort of mixed up in a, in a very simple sentence of, I don't want you to make my child feel guilty. Um, And that can come from a misunderstanding of what's being taught, a mistrust in how it will be taught or, or just a, a fear that, that can come from a lot of different places. I took a job as a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader in a predominantly white school district um, that, that does not have um, a ton of racial or socioeconomic diversity. I think it has a lot of political diversity. I'm still learning the community, um, so take that as you will. But what I know is this is a district that cares deeply about doing right by young people. This is a district that has a track record with the way that it um, supports and treats young people who are um, students with IEPs, students who are special education learners, uh, that proves that they care about kids. And this is a community when parents are not happy with the way that, that the education system is treating their babies, they advocate. And that is fertile ground to have really complicated conversations um, of how we make sure all young people feel included, right? If we love young people, if we're here for young people, um, you know, I showed up, I, I watched a school board meeting when I was being appointed, it was broadcast. And they did this great thing where every teacher who was retiring got a speech and every teacher who was getting tenure, they gave a speech to talk about how fabulous they were. That centering love and education in that way, centering the humanity and education is easily stretched to, okay, so who do, who do we care about? Who is our curriculum saying we value? Who is, you know, when we look at our clubs and we look at our pedagogical practices, who are we saying we value and who might feel as if they're not valued and that's not intentional, right? We, we don't mean to tell them that they're not valued. So what are the questions we need to ask to figure out who is and is not feeling valued? Who are we at our best moments and who are we at our worst moments? And how do we sort of bridge that gap? And, and so along those lines, these are very politically charged times with legislation and school board votes mandating what can and cannot be taught in schools. 
Um, there are a lot of very uh, charged board meetings going on. How do you suggest that teachers navigate their way through this and maintain their sanity in a time when teachers are leaving the field? Yeah. You know, I just gave a speech. Um, Hunter College asked me to talk to all of the, the, the aspiring teachers who were going off to do their student teaching. And I started, I had this PowerPoint with like a very stressed out looking man holding his head and all these people talking at him. And I said, welcome, welcome to this moment in education, right? Um, And yet, and yet you've chosen to do this work, right? And nobody goes into education to cause harm. Um, And yet we are asked to do more and more with less and less. If you look at the, the pay gap for the educational qualifications that a teacher needs as compared to other people in um, similar, who have similar requirements. It's like something like on average a 20% pay gap. I, I just read an article about that. Um, so we are, we are undervaluing teachers, asking more of teachers and deciding that we all know how to do a teacher's job without those qualifications, right? That is sort of what is going on in the world. Right, right. And, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult moment for a teacher to say, is this another thing I want to take on right now? Do I really want to deal with the 20 phone calls I'm going to get because I chose to read this book or because I intervened when that young person used language that was concerning or is it better just to pretend I didn't hear, right? I mean, that's a real question of is the blow black worth it when I have a checklist of 80 million things to do and who knows what the political drama is going to be in me responding to this or choosing this. And, and so you know, I think it has to be a systems level approach. We have to train teachers how to ask questions, right? How to say, do you know the history of that thing that you just said? Or do you know how that impacted that young, do you know how that impacted the rest of us when we heard when we heard you say that? Or tell me more about why you said that, right? We have to teach educators to lead with questions. We have to support educators to say, I don't know. Right. We have to support educators to say that's not sitting right with me, but I need more information before we can have this conversation. And and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of training that goes into it. And then we need to know and educators need to know that they have a school district that will back them, that will say, you know, these are the tools we provided them. This is the language we provided them. And we are going to stand by this. And, and we are going to hear what the concerns are and we're going to respond to the concerns because education is different in that people have a vested interest in it in a way they don't have it. I mean, other than my doctor, there is no one who is so intimately involved in my life as my kids' teachers. And so I, when I am concerned, I want to go talk to my kids' teacher and I want to know that I'm allowed to do that. Right. right? The school district should be facilitating that. And the school district should be supporting and saying, you know, here are our core values. Here's here's what we believe to be true. Here are the dialogue. Here's the dialogue that we are willing to engage in, and here's how you do it. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, no. I mean, because the whole uh, topic is there's so many directions you can run in. Susan, feel free to run in any direction you want. Um, but uh, well, let me get back to the book. Uh, how did you and Robert Harvey come to write your awesome new book, Teaching as Protest and Abolition? Yeah, I mean, I'll give all the you know, Rob said, want to write a book. So um, Rob, <laughs> that's how I picked my co-authors. <laughs> uh, Rob had already written um, a text on sort of le- leading through abolition. Um, and he wanted to do something that was teacher based and that was really practical. So he wanted someone who had been a practitioner um, 
in different ways than he had. Um, and so I had um, more, more classroom and teacher coaching experience. And part of my coaching experience is supporting both novice, but also veteran teachers to break down what they do, why they do it and how they could teach somebody else to do it. Right. Um, when you, when you, when you get a mentor teacher, who's going to train a brand new teacher in his or her or their classroom, they have to, they have to know what they're doing at every moment and why they're doing it and how it works and what their thinking process was. And Rob really wanted that in the book, right? He really wanted us to say, you know, you have this moment, what are the questions you can ask? What are the actual activities you can do? And so he brought me in to really be the, the, here are the three steps, right? He has these, he has these uh, great ideas about how to think differently about education. Rob is a, is a, is a preacher and he can really bring you in with his passion and with his reform. And then, you know, I was a teacher. I always want to flip to the, okay, so what do I, what, do I, what, what am I doing tomorrow? Right. And so Rob and I are a really good balance of the passion and the why this matters and the, what am, what am I going to do tomorrow? And that's what's so great about the book because they get, they get the, the kind of preacher why, and then they get the practical how, what you can now do at this point, which I think it's, I think it's wonderful. My biggest question is uh, the title. It, it seems um, confrontational or, or perhaps a call to action teaching as protest and abolition. Do you think that there will be school districts that will ban it for their teachers? Yeah. Probably. Um, I, think <laughs> I couldn't resist that question. <laughs> it's, it's a fair question. You know, I think that there are third rail words, right? There are words that have become um, representative of more than they are or their definitions have changed, right? I think um, there's a lot of words like that, right? I mean, restorative and restoration are words that are so, or justice, right? Those are words that are so powerful and empowering and can change the world and can cause a lot of fear because of their power to cop to change. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, protest, I think that the, the word protest has been narrowed in its history to just the word protest has become something that people associate with one moment in time, one movement, one identity, right? We think a lot of it when we think of the civil rights movement, when we think about um, segregation, when we think about Jim Crow, but, but, but the idea of protest and young people saying, this doesn't feel right, what can we do about it, is, is a legacy that this country is built on. In fact, I would say that the entire United States was was created out of protest, right? And, exactly. And so I think that it's it's really just a title that celebrates and acknowledges the legacy of this country. And, and I feel like it really, the way you, you both write about it is, it really uses protest in a way to take into account what's going on. And if something is going on that doesn't seem right, then you want to take some sort of an action around it. And of course, abolition means let's, you know, get rid of the things that don't seem to work. And so when you really tease out those words, those are powerful and wonderful world, words that everyone could, should be using in every day of their life about everything that happens to them. We've taken those words to, to when we hear them, they sound much more confrontational when they than they really are, because they really are more about higher order reasoning and thinking. 
Yeah. I mean, people seem to think that those words belong to one political party or one way of thinking. But the other day I was reading an email exchange between two parents and they were having a heated debate about uh, a curricular choice. And they were both, in in my view, exercising sort of their right to protest, right? One parent was very concerned about the exposure to this particular curricular topic. The other parent thought it was really critical. And I would argue that the parent who did not think that this belonged in the curriculum would not have even recognized how much they were exercising their right to protest in that moment, right? And their power and their knowledge to protest. They were putting together a cogent argument about why this curricular choice didn't make sense. They were, you know, they were giving examples of the effect that it had on them and their young people. And um, while I may not have fundamentally agreed with that argument, someone taught that parent how to protest, right? And I am not sure that that parent would have even recognized that that's what they were doing in that moment. And so if we had, could get together and even say like, well, let's look at this. Let's look at the power of this and what skills you needed in order to even have this debate. We could really come together and realize language like that is actually not political. It's what we hope all of our young people will grow up to be. It's the content of the debate and what we believe to be fundamentally true that is different. But that's okay, because our job is to teach young people to think and to debate and to do it in a way that does not dehumanize others. Yeah, I I think that's key because, as you said before, I mean, our country was founded on protest and abolition and, and standing up for what we didn't believe in. And I think too often we look at the word protest, meaning like you have to take to the streets, you know, with banners and placards. And protest is anytime you hear something and you say, that doesn't sound right, let me speak up about it. And particularly speak up with facts, speak up with reasoning. Uh, I I was having a discussion, you know, politics. I love to discuss politics, but I was having a discussion with uh, a friend's boyfriend who was of a different political persuasion than I. And we were just going back and forth and and he would, in, in his argument, he would call me names. And I said to him, no, 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 we're not allowed to call each other names. And he started laughing. And I'm like, yeah, that's not an argument technique. And, our, you know, what we need to do is just cite, like, here's a fact. Here's a fact I heard. Well, where did you hear that? Well, how do you know that that source is? I mean, that's what we can have a discussion on. And it did end up being a much richer discussion when we took out, like, just name calling, you know. But I think that's, you know, protest is speaking up about what you think shouldn't be uh, the way it's presented. And it starts with teachers giving young people the parameters by which they can say, and this is what we write about in our book a lot, right, is how do you teach young people to ask questions? How do you teach young people to talk about what they heard and the impact of the impact of what they heard you know, what it had on them. And also like, what do I know? What feels missing from this conversation and how am I going to figure it out? Right. And, and so, you know, part of debate, you said, you know, talking about the facts and it's, well, what facts do I know? And what facts might be missing, right? We don't know what we don't know. So we have to figure out what questions do we need to ask? Whose point of view is here and whose point of view feels missing? And how am I going to find that point of view? And how do I tell someone that I disagree with them in a way that they can still hear me? 
they can still feel validated as a human being whose opinions matter and they can respond to me and I can acknowledge that I heard them, right? And I think so often- Now that is a skill we should be teaching in schools. Well, that is that is what the that is what we talk about a lot in the book, right? How do you how do you debate in a human way? Right, right. Now, your early career was focused on literacy, particularly in the um, elementary grades. What connections do you see between literacy instruction and equity? Yeah, I mean, language is power. Um, I actually teach a course on foundational literacy, or I, I did for several years um, to graduate students and we always started with what is literacy? The first question I asked, um, because literacy is, is a currency, right? It gives us access to, to a world when we know how to speak in a way that is acceptable, when we know how to write in a way that is you know, accepted by society, um, when we can uh, you know, look at signs and pictures and have enough shared culture to interpret what we're looking at in the same way as the person next to us. And all of that is literacy. And so in order to give young people access to the world, in order to make things more equitable, we have to recognize the, the currency of literacy, right? And to define literacy in a much broader way. And so, you know, when you're teaching a fifth grader who cannot break down a word because he doesn't know the phonics, the correct answer to that young person is, you know, that's okay. Someone just hasn't taught you how to decode. They haven't given you the decoder ring yet. Someone just hasn't taught you how to do this yet, right? And so I was finding that, we were not giving young people the access and the power that they needed to navigate the world in front of them. And it felt really disproportionate for some young people over others. Right. And that's, that was another way that I started thinking about, you know, why, why was this not a problem for me as a fifth grader, but it is a problem for all of these fifth graders that I'm teaching. <laughs> and what are the adult mindsets about these fifth graders that, that this is okay. I love it. And I love our conversation, Susan. Let's unwrap the learning. What's next for you? And you can't say finishing your doctorate. So assuming that we all understand that's on the table and needs to get, you know, off the table. What do you hope to accomplish next in this area of diversity, equity, and inclusion? I appreciate that you're not um, forcing me to finish my doctorate. So thank you. Not at all. Because it might never happen. <laughs> now, now, now we have to talk. <laughs> <laughs> because it might not happen in as, as timely a way as my next career steps. How's that? <laughs> um, Intriguing. We're still going to talk. Um, yeah. So I, I've, um, I've left New York city, uh, which is, which is huge for me close to two decades in New York city. And I've, um, I've come home. I, I grew up and I live in Westchester and I, decided to come back to home place. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've read a lot of bell hooks and she talks about home place and, and um, this is my home place, right? And I, you gotta take care of your own. You gotta think about who you best understand in the world and who understands you best in the world. And so I've, I've moved back to Westchester professionally or I've moved to Westchester professionally and I'm um, teaching in this small school district in, or not teaching. I am a teacher on special assignment. I am the district level um, DEI leader. 
And I'm just getting to work with a lot of fabulous people who care about young people, who care about the work of education, who are in the work for all of the right reasons, and a community that is passionate about giving their young people the best possible educational experience that they can, um, and recognizing that the world is changing, that the community is changing, um, and that teachers have not always been given the tools to navigate our complicated system and our complicated world. And, and I'm here to figure out what does diversity look like in a space like this? How do we all define equity? What does inclusion mean? And how do we make sure that all of our young people feel loved and held and supported? And that, that we don't think that supporting and loving and holding all young people uh, has to be done by excluding other young people. Right. And so how do how do we how do we create a school system? Uh, you know, we talk about in this district creating global citizens. And so I think what does it really mean to create a global citizen who understands the world beyond their own community? Right. This community does not reflect uh, our demographics as a, as a country. And so if we want to prepare our young people to move in the world beyond this school district. We have to make sure that they understand what the world looks like beyond their few blocks. And we have to make sure that they're prepared to engage in conversations with folks who may not have experienced the world that they ex in the way that they experienced it and may not have had the same access, the same family structures, the same political beliefs, the same socioeconomic status, you know, all of that. And, and how do I engage across lines of difference? So that's the work I'm trying to figure out now. Well, uh, I look forward to reading your next book on that topic. Mm -hmm. Because that's my dissertation. So I guess I have to finish it before I can write the book. Now, there you go. We found a reason. You need to finish it so that you can take your dissertation as all your research and then write the book from it. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today, Susan. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to hearing what you accomplish next. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.